y'all. <laughs> I'm Patricia, and I'm an hour nine from Lubbock, Texas. I'm glad to be here again today. I want to thank the committee for inviting me and my husband, Shirley, to come this weekend. It's always an, an honor, a privilege, and a joy to get to come and share with you. Because, you see, there was a period in my life when no one invited me anytime, anywhere. So I'm glad to be here, and I want to thank you. I've heard so many Southerners this weekend. <laughs> I'm not used to this when I go to a conference, but I felt immediately at home. And uh, Ruth and I were discussing last night how we could understand each other's accent. We aren't sure that you can understand us. <laughs> but I just about decided, Ruth, that the South may rise again. <laughs> I'm here today to share my experience, strength, and hope with you all. And to tell you how it was, what happened, and how it is today in my life. I'm a little country girl. I was raised on a farm by two loving parents. I'm an only child, and I came from a home where drinking was never a problem. I started dating at a very early age, and the first date that I had was with my husband. And you've already met him. And I have to tell you that I'm tickled to death that he's here with me. That tells you a little bit about the program. We didn't used to travel together too much. <laughs> but we had the one day he didn't call me again for six months. And this confused me. And when he called me, I asked him why he waited so long to call. He said he wanted to give me time to grow up. <laughs> I think there could have been something wrong with us then. We went together for two and a half years, then we were married. Now, I was a good decision maker, and I made a decision. And that was that I was to be the perfect wife, I was going to have the perfect husband, the perfect home, and the perfect children, and I wanted two children, and I wanted two little boys. And I had these little boys, and you would have thought that it was all my idea. I never gave Shirley any of the credit, and I certainly didn't give God any of it. And um, we started out this perfect situation, and uh, we were very busy, and we had some goals in our lives, and we had some dreams, and we had some ambition, and we set about to grow along these lines. But something happened about this time. Now, we were married almost 10 years before the drinking started in our lives. And I didn't understand what was going on, and I thought that I was the reason that my husband was drinking. He told me I was the reason that he drank. <laughs> he said if I didn't do certain things, he wouldn't drink so much. And I carried this guilt for a long time. And uh, my husband was a very successful man in the beginning. And I was proud of him. And my husband's in the cotton business. And the business that we owned at that time, he had the largest cotton business of that type in the world. And I looked at him and I was so proud of him. 
But you see, I had some things mixed up. The only thing that was important to me at that time in my life were material things. And this business gave me everything I wanted. We had a new home. We could have new cars. We had skiing trips in the wintertime, trips to the mountains in the summer. We had all the things that looked good. And if you had been looking at us from the outside, you would have probably thought it was an ideal situation. There we were, the little family with the two children and the, the new brick home and the two cars in the garage and this type of thing. But there was something missing in that house because it was a house at that time. And that was God. And I didn't know this at that time. And about this time, something started to happen in our lives. My husband didn't come home so much anymore. And the drinking started. And I learned some things about this time. I learned about loneliness. And I learned about fear. And uh, I think the best way for me to describe this for you all is just to go over a typical day at our house for you back then. I would get up in the morning, and I would go into the kitchen, and I'd get breakfast ready. I'd go in the bedrooms, and I'd tell the little boys to get up, get ready for school. So they'd get up, and then I'd go in and tell the daddy to get up to go to work, because you see, I ran that place, and he didn't want to get up. So we played games at our house. Have y'all ever played games? <laughs> I would go into the kitchen and I would get a glass of ice water and take it in and pour it on him. Now, believe you me, he would get up. <laughs> and this is the way that our day started. The children would be at the breakfast table. Here he comes, soaking wet, mad, and there would be a fuss at the breakfast table. And I would send two little children to school in tears every morning. Well, when they left and their daddy left to go to work, I got very busy because I'm known as Mrs. Clean. And I would clean that house. And when I got through in that house, I'd get out and work in that yard. Because if everything looks good on the outside, no one knows how bad things are on the inside. So I did this, and the children would come home from school in the afternoon. Now, I was not a mother. I was a sergeant. Those children had certain responsibilities. They had jobs that they had to take care of. Like when they got home in the afternoon, they had to shine their shoes. They had to get their baths. They had to get their homework. There wasn't time for them to play with other children. We had to be spick and span when their daddy came home. Now, I don't really know why it was so important for us to impress him, but it was. <laughs> and I would get the evening meal ready, and he sometimes he came home and sometimes he didn't come home. But when he did, we'd sit down to the evening meal, and there would be a fuss at the dinner table. And if I didn't start it, he did. Because, you see, I stayed mad all the time. I was either mad from the night before, or the week before, or the month before, or sometime. And he would say, well, if that's the way you feel about it, I'm leaving. Pick up his napkin, throw it down in his plate, and walk out the back door. 
And he said he used to just laugh because now he could go drink. But you know, it wasn't funny to me. And I'd tell those two little boys to get through eating, and we'd get the dishes up, and then they could go to bed. And they didn't always want to go to bed, because sometimes it wouldn't be dark. But you see, I didn't care what they wanted. They were going to do exactly what I said, because my husband might not do what I wanted him to do, but I can promise you those children would, because I was bigger than they were, and they would mind me. And they would go to bed, and I'd turn on the TV set. And I would think, uh, there'd be a program on that was funny. The reason I knew it was funny is because on TV they would be laughing, but I couldn't. And I've gotten up and gone in the other room and looked in the mirror and thought, what's wrong with me? What is wrong with me? I can't laugh anymore. I can't feel anymore. What's wrong? And uh, then I'd go back into the den, and uh, sometimes I'd go to bed, and sometimes I would go to sleep. And then I'd wake up, and I'd feel over in the bed, and he wasn't there. And I'd get up, and I'd go look at the bedroom window. And I would think, I wonder where he is. What is wrong with me? Why does he not want to be home with me anymore? Uh, the next thought I would ha have would be, oh, please don't let him have a wreck and kill someone tonight. Let him get home safe. Then I, the next thought I would have, if he does get home, I might kill him. <laughs> And then the next thought I had was, I wonder if he's paid the insurance. <laughs> but then I would think, no, if you'll just get home safe tonight, it's going to be different tomorrow. It was always going to be different tomorrow. But tomorrow it wasn't different. And I had to come to you to learn that it never gets better when you live in the disease of alcoholism. It gets worse because alcoholism is a disease and it progresses. But I didn't know these things at that time. And so he would come home 2, 3, 4 o'clock in the morning. And then I'd lay there and pretend to be asleep. And we'd get up the next day and start that rat race all over again. And I hated the way I was living. I was lonely. I was scared. And I didn't know what to do. And I couldn't talk to anybody because I was perfect. And when you're perfect, you can't go to someone and say, help me. I have a problem. That's unheard of. So I couldn't talk to anybody. And my mother came up about this time one day. Now, I thought I kept this drinking a secret from the world. When my husband would get home and park the car sideways in the drive, I would get up at 6 o'clock in the morning and run out and straighten that car up so the neighbors wouldn't know. I didn't think anybody knew, you know, they could have heard me down at the end of the block screaming and hollering. But my mother came up and she said, Patricia, how much more of this can you take? 
and this surprised me. I didn't think they knew, because you see, when I got married, I was very young, and my mother and dad did not want me to get married. And I told my dad on the day that we got married that my marriage would work, and I would show him. And I set about to prove to him that that marriage would work. And so um, she said, you know, I've been reading an article in Reader's Digest, and that's how I came to you people, through an article in Reader's Digest. She said, I think Shirley is an alcoholic. I looked at my mother and I laughed in her face. I said, this man that I married that's been so good to me up until now, and just because he drinks a little bit too much sometime, you think he's an alcoholic? I said, do you know what an alcoholic is? She said, no. But she said in this article, it said only an alcoholic can have another alcoholic. She said, why don't you call his brother? Now, Shirley's brother was the only admitted alcoholic that I knew of. He used to call us some. And uh, I'd hear Shirley talking to him, and, and Shirley would tell me that when he finished talking to him, that he'd ask him how he was doing, and he'd say, well, I'm doing pretty good. said, everything's running pretty smooth. said, we're going to AA meetings. And I thought, oh, my God, if I went down there, I sure wouldn't be telling him. <laughs> so she's asking me to call this man, and I didn't like this man. I hadn't seen him in seven years. When I knew him, he had lied to me, he had gotten money behind my back, and done the things that go with the disease of alcoholism. But my mother looked at me that morning, and she said, you know, Patricia, we've done everything. And I hear AA members sometimes stand behind podiums and they say, only an alcoholic understands this hurt look that they see in the family members' eyes are the people that love them so and that they love. Let me tell you something, and Al-Anon understands that look also, because I saw it in my mother's eyes that day. It was such a look of desperation, this look of bewilderment, this look of I've done everything. What? There's no hope. No hope. And so... Uh, she was asking me to call my brother-in-law, and I thought about it, and I did call him. And I talked to my sister-in-law first, and she's also a member of Alcoholics Anonymous. And I can't tell you a thing they told me on the phone that day. But I can tell you that a week later, we get a phone call, and they said, we'll be at the airport tomorrow. Will you please pick us up? Well, I have to tell you that I had mixed emotions about this time. I thought, oh, my gosh, look what my mother's gotten me into now. I've got one drunk, and here comes two more. Well, they get off the plane, and they're smiling, and I hadn't seen these people look like this before. And I can tell you that the program works by attraction rather than promotion. And so my sister-in-law stayed with me for two days and two nights, and Shirley went with his brother on a business trip into Arkansas. Now, uh, she had no sooner arrived at our home than she said, Patricia, would you go to an open AA meeting with me tonight? 
I thought, oh, Lord. She said, I need a meeting. I thought, well, if she needs a meeting, I'll go with her. Now, wasn't that big of me? We went to this meeting, and there were three men who talked, and one of the men I thought was telling my husband's story. You know, we're pretty sick when we arrive here. And he told about how he didn't like to go to the door when the doorbell rang, and how he couldn't brush his teeth in the morning without gagging, and how he didn't like to talk on the phone. And I knew what that man was talking about. Because you see, by now, when our doorbell rang, uh, y'all know I'm a Texan, and I like western hats, and I like cowboy boots. And, uh, but I learned to hate them about this time in my life, because you see, Every time that cotton-picking doorbell would ring, there would be a deputy sheriff standing at that door with some little papers. And in Texas, deputy sheriffs wear western hats and cowboy boots. And I didn't like that. And I got to where I didn't want to see one of those hats. Now, I think I'm getting well. Because you know what happened? At Christmas this year, I bought my husband a western hat. And I'm going to tell you something, it makes anything that J.R. Ewing wears look sick. (laughs) So, I'm at this meeting and I'm hearing these things, and I knew what this man was talking about, about the telephone. I didn't like to answer the phone because I had run out of excuses. I had lied, and I had lied, and I had lied, and I didn't like to lie. I had not been raised to live this way, and I felt dirty, and I didn't like that telephone. I couldn't brush my teeth without gagging. I could no longer eat. I was so uncomfortable. So I knew exactly what he was talking about. Now, my sister-in-law went home with me after that meeting, and she talked to me for those two days and two nights, and I'll never forget the feeling I had. I wish she would shut up. (laughs) This woman is driving me up the wall. But thank God she talked, because she got me to talking. And, you know, she told me some things that didn't make a bit of sense to me. She said, you know, Patricia, this is the longest distance we have ever traveled to make a 12-step call. She said, we came because you called and asked for help. Not for Shirley, but for you. She said, I came to plant the seed. And it didn't mean a thing to me. And she had to go home, and I thought, oh, my Lord, my help's going away. Finally, finally, there's somebody in this world that understands, and she's going away, and and I'm going to be alone again, and I'm going to be scared, and I'm going to hurt, and I'm not going to have anybody. And she asked me if I'd go to an Al-Anon meeting when she left, and I promised her I would that week, and I went to an Al-Anon meeting. And I walked in that night, and people were look just like y'all look here today, and talking, and visiting, and drinking coffee, and they took me into the Al-Anon meeting. And that particular night, at this group, they read out of a book, and they passed that book around for me to read a page, and everyone else, and we discussed it. When I got to me, and had to read that page, I thought, I'll never get through this. 
And I thought, if I do, I'll leave this meeting and I'll never come back. And that's exactly what I did. I stayed around after the meeting just long enough to be polite and well-mannered. Now, I don't know about you all, but in Texas we're taught to have manners. So I wanted to be well-mannered and to look good and to act good because, after all, there was nothing wrong with me. It was that drunk that I lived with that caused all the problems. So I stayed, and as soon as I could get away from there, though, I left that meeting, and I didn't go back to that to a meeting for four months because I'm a fighter. And I learned some lessons in that four-month period, some good, hard lessons. You know, I see people that come to the program and they don't stay. And I hurt for them when they go back out because I know what's going on. They haven't hit a bottom. They haven't had all it takes yet. And that's what happened to me. I wasn't ready for this program when I first walked in the doors. I had to hurt some more. And in that four-month period, I learned something. I learned what it was to live in fear, and that's not pretty. I learned what it was not to ever be able to lay my head down on the pillow at night and go to sleep. I learned how to dodge things like bowls of hot soup and fists and big books. Oh, I learned many things. And I don't tell you this for pity, other than there might be some new person sitting there this afternoon that says, I wonder if she's really been there. And I can tell you, I've been there. And the disease of alcoholism is not pretty. And it doesn't do pretty things to the family members. You see, I never drank alcohol that much. But alcohol, when my husband drank, did things to me. It took me to places I did not want to go. It made me do things I did not want to do. And it made me become a person I did not want to be. So alcoholism isn't pretty. And... uh, I called my brother-in-law again, and I said, Don, this man that I'm living with is crazy, and he's got to be committed. And he said, well, Patricia, I really don't think he's that bad. He said, are you attending Al-Anon? Oh, honest me, I said, yes. <laughs> One meeting. He said, he was wise. You know, we, we, we can read these con artists. And he said, um, let me get you in touch with another group in Lubbock. I made up a lot of excuses to this man. I'm sure y'all have never heard anything like this, but I told him that the people were older than I was. (laughs) They were, mentally. When I got to you all, I was 29 years old. Mentally, I was 16. So they were older than I was. I said they read out of books. If I want to do that, I can go to church and Sunday school. And I hadn't been to church and Sunday school in years. But he was wise, and he said, well, let me get you in touch with another group. And I thought, oh, pooey. He's just telling me this because he didn't want to have his brother put in hospital, and he won't do anything. They've never done anything. Why would he do anything now? 
negative, negative. That's the way I live, in a negative world. So that afternoon my phone rang and it was a man from Central Club in Lubbock. And every time I think about Central Club, I have to say, thank God. And he said that he had a little French wife and she was a good Almon and she could help me if I would call her. And he talked to me on the phone that day and he said things like this. He said, you know, you're as sick if not sicker than your husband. I thought he doesn't know who he's talking to. <laughs> but I called his little wife and she talked to me enough that I knew she knew what she was talking about. And I went to a meeting with her in a night or so. And we walked in Central Club and people were laughing and smiling and shaking hands and kissing one another. Now, I liked the laughing and the smiling and the shaking hands, but when they started that kissing, uh, I told my husband after I'd been down there a while, they better not ever come and kiss me. Now I'm the, one of the worst kissers of all. But when I went into that Al-Anon meeting that night, I cannot tell you one thing they said in that meeting. But I can tell you when it was over, I felt good. Some people took me home with them that night. I hadn't been to anyone's home in so long. And we visited, and I had as good a time as I could have had at that time. Now I would like to tell you that I went to Al-Anon with open arms. I didn't. I'm a fighter. I had to have five girls call me every day. And this little French girl knows about tough love. And if you're new in this program, you might just search around and find you some of the, somebody that you think is just about the meanest old thing in this program. Because they might just be mean enough and tough enough with you to save your life. And that's what it took for me. And she would say, Patricia, you're going to the meeting tonight. I'd say, I don't think so. I'm pretty busy. I had a lot of things to do, a lot of thinking to do. Where is he and who is he with? She said, well, that's all right. You just stay at home and have a nervous breakdown in the privacy of your own home. So let me tell you, I went to Al-Anon. And um, my husband is a beer drinker, and he wasn't an alcoholic. He told me this. <laughs> he said, uh, I don't need to go to meetings, so I don't want you down there with those drunks. There's not anything wrong with you, and you don't need to be down there, and I don't want you to go. One time, even after I'd made a few meetings, he convinced me he wasn't an alcoholic. Sick, sick thinking. So, one of these five girls called me and she convinced me that he was an alcoholic. And he's never convinced me that he hadn't been an alcoholic since then. But you know, a lot of times we're looking for any answer other than where the answer is. And I'm going to tell you, if you're new here today, the search is over when you arrive in Al-Anon RIA. The search is over. And I didn't know that at that time. 
I would go to meetings, and I would get out of the meetings, and I'd go get in my car to go home, and there'd be notes in the car asking me to please come home. He wanted to talk to me. <laughs> we hadn't communicated very much in a long time. I, I didn't really know anything we had to discuss. Uh, it wasn't pretty in the beginning when I started to Al-Anon. I hear new Al-Anon say, uh, Oh, I can't go to meetings. Uh, you don't understand. My husband's violent. I might get hurt. But I do understand. And I know that Al-Anon's the only answer for that person. And uh, it got where they like at... Uh, Around 4 o'clock on Wednesday afternoon, he would come home and he wouldn't take me out to dinner into a movie Wednesday night. That's my Al-Anon night. <laughs> he didn't like me going down there. When I came in at 12 or 1 o'clock at night after the meetings, after the meeting, after the meeting, I came in smiling. Oh, that made him mad. <laughs> He thought I had a boyfriend. He didn't know I didn't want a boyfriend. But we had quite a time. And on Saturday night is family night at our group, and that's when the families come and they bring their children. And I was going to these meetings, and I was taking these two little boys who were 8 and 12 at the time. And they needed the fellowship. They needed to be with people as bad as I needed the fellowship. Because, you see, what I did to my children wasn't pretty. I shut them away from the world. I did not allow those young boys to have friends because someone might find out. So the children were alone and they were hurting. And so they looked forward to going to the meetings on Saturday night with me. And I'd walk in and I'd see these families come together. So finally I started asking some questions. And I said, you know, this program's beautiful. I can see it working in the people's lives. I can see sober members of Alcoholics Anonymous. But how is my husband ever going to get sober? They said, well, usually there has to be a crisis in the alcoholic's life before they come to Alcoholics Anonymous. So in my confused, mixed-up way of thinking, I thought a crisis, if we need one, we'll have one. to the dentist office for dental surgery one morning and I went to the attorney's office and filed for divorce. We had our crisis. We were separated about 10 days. I took the children and moved out. I went to my parents' home and I told him that I had had just about all of his business that I could handle. And I thought that I would be happier elsewhere. And we left and uh, on the day that he was to move out of the house, he called me and he said, Patricia, come home. If you'll come home, I'll go to AA. I'll quit drinking. I'll do anything. And I said, no, Shirley, you won't. You promised me too many times. I don't believe you. And he wanted to talk to our young son, and he got on the phone with Jamie, and he said, Jamie, come home. And Jamie says, no, Daddy, I'm not coming home, not till you quit drinking. 
It wasn't pretty. Alcoholism isn't pretty. He came out to my parents' home, and he started talking to me. And, and there was this thing, and, and he was crying, and everybody's crying, and everybody's upset, and everybody that's life touches an alcoholic gets sick. And he's promising all these promises. And my mother's standing there, and she's looking at me, and she said, Patricia, I believe he really means it this time. And I looked at my mother, and I thought, oh, my God, she's sicker than I am. <laughs> he said, let me talk to an AA member. Come with me. So he called an AA member, and he came out, and he talked to Shirley and I in our home that afternoon. All afternoon. And he said a couple of things that made sense to me that day in my confused, mixed-up mind. He said, you know, this is a new day, and you don't ever have to go back there if you don't want to. You can start anew today. And he looked at me, and he said, you'd give a dog a second chance, wouldn't you? I thought, that man knows my husband. <laughs> well... We started going to meetings together that night, and we have been going to meetings together ever since. Now, I would like to tell anyone that's sitting out there that thinks they might run down and file for divorce that that will get their mates sober. It won't, because it didn't work. My husband did not get sober. And now I had done everything that I knew to do to get this man sober, and nothing worked. He would get 10 days and drink, 20 days and drink, 30 days and drink. And every time he would get a little sobriety, my hopes would be built up, and I would think it's going to work this time. And then he would drink again. And I thought, my God, I've got one of those that they talk about in the big book. <laughs> one of those incurable ones. <laughs> and it would just kill me. But this is what now, where I really like to talk to you all. Because this is what I like to talk about in my life today. What happened? I quit fighting. I surrendered. I said, I've done it all. Nothing. Nothing else can I do. I took the first step. I admitted that I was powerless over my husband. And you bet I had an unmanageable life. I've already told you about it. How unmanageable. How insane I was living. You bet I did. And I surrendered. I quit fighting. I gave up. And I found out something in Al-Anon. That is the only place that I had ever been that when I gave up, I won. And that's what happens in the first step. When you give up, you quit fighting, you surrender, you can't handle it any longer, then you become the winner. And I'm going to tell you, from that time on, I've been a winner. And I am a winner. 
I am a winner today. There's no more time in my life for negative thinking. There's no more time for being a loser. I can hold my head high and look up. And I came to the second step in the program. And I went to a conference about this time. And there was a man from Canada that that we loved very much who was speaking on the steps. And he said, just think about what you have done. Think about it, about the insanity part of the second step. And I'm going to share this with you all, because I think this will show you that I do qualify if you don't already know this. But this is when I had just made a couple of Al-Anon meetings, and my husband was still drinking. And uh, he came in one afternoon to take a bath. Now, this was always an Academy Award presentation. He'd run the bathtub full of water, mix him a couple of drinks, get him a big cigar, and he'd get in the bathtub. And he'd be laying back, you know, so relaxed and so comfortable, just about half out, drinking those drinks and smoking that cigar. And, you know, there's the suds in the water. And he looked a little bit like Lana Turner. some things that I wasn't supposed to know about. So I go in the bedroom and I get the 38 out of the closet. And I brought this gun in and I put it between his eyes. And I said, they tell me in Al-Anon that you're sick and you're not sorry. And the reason that you do all these terrible things that hurt me so bad is that you're an alcoholic. I said, well, I'm going to tell you something, you son of a bitch. You better hope that you're an alcoholic. took that gun and I put it up in the closet. I haven't had that gun out since. And I went in and I felt sick. I felt sick at my stomach. Again, alcohol did things to me. It took me to places I didn't want to go. It made me do things I didn't want to do. It made me become a person I did not want to be. That was not me that did those things, I knew it, but I couldn't quit doing those things. And I got on my knees, and this is the first time I'd ever been on my knees in that bedroom, and I said this, oh God, please help me. I knew I couldn't go on any longer like this. 
And this is where I like to think that I began to take my third step. Nothing happened. I didn't see a burning bush or a flash of light. Only thing that happened was that I kept going to those doggone Al-Anon meetings. And they were your meetings at that time. They weren't mine. Later they became my meetings and it became my program and it has become my life. Al-Anon is not my way of life. Al-Anon is my life. But it wasn't at that time. And uh, I kept going and I kept listening. And I was told about this time uh, to go to another conference. And I went to a conference. Shirley and I went to a conference. And there were two people talking at this conference. One alcoholic and one Al-Anon. And the alcoholic got up on Sunday morning, and he was an old gentleman, and he was very ill. And it was in Longview, Texas, and his name was Burton Crawford. And he said some things that day. In his talk, he talked about rebuilding families. And he said, you know, there's a a piece of white velvet down inside of each alcoholic that's never been solved. And then there was a little Al-Anon that talked. And that little Al-Anon was an Indian girl. And she got up behind the podium and she sparkled and she shined and she talked it in a way that I understood because she talked a language of the heart that, that I could understand and identify with. And that little Indian girl was Ramona. And later on, that little Indian girl became my sponsor. And that little Indian girl did things for me, things that no one else had ever done for me. She used to get down on her knees and pray with me, for me. And she used to hold my hand and she gave me hope. And she would tell me over and over and over again, Patricia, this program works. God has no favorites. He will do for you what he does for anyone else. He loves you. Don't ever place me as God. Don't ever do that because there's only one God and he's a selfish God. But she told me many things and she not only told me things but she lived those things. And she made me love this program because she carried it in such a beautiful, beautiful package that I would have done anything in this world to have gotten it. We do this program by attraction rather than promotion. And she glowed and I knew, I knew that she knew. And I wrote an inventory about this time, and I went to a conference, and there was an AA lady at this conference. Now, I did not plan to take my fifth step with this lady, but I feel that after you take your third step, the choice is really gone now, because you're living God's way and not your way. 
And this lady was presented to me, and I took my fifth step with her. When I got through, she looked at me and she said, God loves you, Patricia, and he forgives you. Now go out and live. And how true those words are. Now I'm going to tell you, everything I'm saying here today is my opinion. And I am by no means an authority on Al-Anon. But I have to tell you that I do not believe there is any way that you can grow in this program until you have taken a fourth step that is written and then gone to someone and told them about it in the fifth step. You cannot rebuild a life on a life of destruction. He brought me here. This is where he wants me to be, right here. Next on that list was myself. I thought in the beginning that's selfish, but let me tell you, it's not selfish to be good to yourself. I had harmed me really good. I had shut myself away from people. In doing that, I shut myself away from God. So what do I do? I had no self-worth when I got here. I picked up the phone and I'd call another Al-Anon. I would have to force myself to do this. In the beginning, the next thing I know, they're calling me, talking to me. This gave me a little bit of confidence in myself. The next thing I know, I'm calling them and I say, would you like to go to lunch? Then they're calling me. My phone rings all the time now, but I learned something from this. First, if you want to have a friend, you must be a friend. And it's surprising how it works. But I found out, you know, I am somebody. I am worth something. So I don't have to worry about any of that today. You know, people call me. People want to be with me today. And I think that's just pretty doggone good. So I'm pretty good to me. I play tennis. I do a lot of things for me today. I love to play tennis. But I have to watch that, too, because I'm an extreme person, and I can be too good to me. And when you become too good to yourself, usually in my case, someone suffers, and it's usually a member in my family, because I become a thief. And I rob them of the time that I should be spending with my family if I don't keep a balance in my life. And next on that list was my husband. Now, it was not enough for me to just go to Shirley and say, Shirley, I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I poured ice water on you. I'm sorry that I broke your thumb with a baseball bat. I'm sorry that I put the gun between your eyes. I'm sorry that I used to chase you around with a butcher knife. I was not a quiet little Alanon. They call me the little pistol. But I tell you what, I don't know about you, but I didn't know how to go about making my amends. And I thought, you know, the best way that I can make my amends to my husband is to be a good wife one day at a time. So I started trying to do this. I started trying when I prepared a meal to fix something he would enjoy eating. I started considering him before I made plans. This is one of the things that I see in Al-Anon that I don't like sometimes. 
We talk about release and let go and let God and release with love. But sometimes I see Al-Anon's releasing, but there's sure no love in it. There is no love whatsoever. They say, well, I'm going to do, I'll go my way and you go yours. That's not release with love. What happens to consideration and kindness? Be considerate of your mate. I think if you're having a problem with your mate, try, try this, because it worked in my life. I started treating my husband in the way that I would like to have been treated. With dignity and respect. He was a child of God's. He was a child of God's. And you know what? Things started happening in my life. Good things started happening. That house that we lived in was no longer a house. It became a home. Today, when you walk into that house, you feel warmth, you feel love, you feel serenity, you feel peace. There's no screaming, there's no hollering in that house any longer. There's joy there. You hear a lot of laughter. You can hear the birds singing. You can see the birds singing. You see flowers blooming in the yard. They say, we didn't promise you a rose garden. I have a rose garden now. Many, many things. Just because I started doing what I should have done all along. Treating this man with dignity. Respect, kindness, and courtesy, a child of God's. I also, when he worked late, now I said tried in every area of my life. When he would work late at night and come home, I didn't pretend to be asleep any longer. Next on that list were my children, and I thought, oh, my Lord, how do you go to these young men, these little boys, and say, I'm sorry, that's not enough. I'm sorry that I was not a good mother. I'm sorry that I didn't take the time when you were little boys to sit down and read you a book. I'm sorry that I was a sergeant. I'm sorry that I didn't care enough to listen, just to listen. I also started doing something. I started listening to these young men. I started picking them up one day a week from school and taking them for hamburgers at McDonald's. Kids like this. I started taking them to the movie, what they would like to see. I started, when they came home from school, they no longer shine their shoes. It's been many years since those kids have had to shine their shoes. Do you know what? They shine them themselves now because they look pretty doggone good. Let go, let go. But I tell you what, things started happening. Uh, Those kids and I have a very good rapport with one another today, and I'm going to get into a little bit more about it. But these are some of the ways that I've had to make amends. I've had to make them with friends that I shut out of my life. And I used to say, well, I didn't hurt anybody. I just didn't go around them. But people don't understand things like this. 
They think they've done something that causes you not to want to be with them. Oh, there are many, many amends that I've had to make. I had to make amends to my family, to my parents who I took money from and never intended to pay it back. When the disease of alcoholism got bad in our home, we lost everything we had. We had three businesses, and the banker, the bank came out and they repossessed everything we had. We had three new Thunderbirds. They took every car we had. We had nothing left. And I called my dad, and in 30 minutes' time, he came up and he bought me a new Thunderbird, and he gave it to me. I took it, I demanded it, and I expected it. And I never said thank you. So, a few years ago, Shirley and I were able to go make some amends to my parents. We've been able to repay them the money that they gave us. Because, you see, those people gave to us when we so desperately needed it. Shirley bought my dad a new El Camino and gave it to him. We have repaid some of our debts materially because that's important. I hear people say, oh, money's not important. Material things aren't important. I wonder how many, how many people have borrowed money and never repaid it. It's important enough to go get it, isn't it? At Christmas time last year, I got to make another amend to my mother. She came up and she opened up a present, and again, a material amend. But she couldn't believe it, and she just opened the package and sat down right there on the floor, and she, we gave her a new mink coat for Christmas. She never thought she'd have anything like that, and she had tears in her eyes. Again, I got to make an amend. Again, I see so many times when I make the amend, the joy, the joy in people. And through these things, I'm learning that it is better to give than to receive. And no longer do I have to be the taker all the time. I've made a lot of amends. I'm sure there are probably some I haven't made because I'm not through growing in this program yet. But, you know, I'm still working at it. The tenth step is the step that I use to keep balance in my life. It's the step that I try to look at me every day and see where I am and if I've hurt someone. And if I have, promptly admit it and make amends so that I don't have to live with this. Because I'm not comfortable when I'm hurting. I don't like to hurt. And then the 11th step, I have to tell you, when I got here, I didn't know how to pray and I didn't know how to meditate. And I had to learn these things and you've taught me. And I don't have time to get into that, but I can tell you that I do know how to pray. Because my prayers have been answered. They're not all answered the way I want them sometimes. But they're all answered. I can tell you how they're answered. They're yes, no, and wait a while. But every one of them are answered. And I can tell you how I know about my meditating. Because they told me that prayer was talking to God and meditating was listening to God. And I have heard the still, small voice. So I know that I can meditate. Meditate.
And in doing this, it's opened a lot of things, a lot of doors for Shirley and I. And I told you we were young when we got married, and we had hopes and dreams and ambitions. And alcoholism came into our lives, and it took these things away. It took them all away. And uh, I thought, we'll never have it again. We'll never have these things again. And Shirley and I decided that we would start praying together in the morning. And before he leaves to go to work, we get on our knees and we talk to God together. Now, in doing this, something happened. We were praying one morning, and I thought, my gosh, look what's happened. How closely we were praying, and how, again, we wanted the same things. Today, we have hopes, we have dreams, we have visions. You know, a man cannot build a house if he first does not have a vision. And today we have those. We have a way to see above and beyond. We have visions. We have dreams. We have ambition. We have a way to go. And in the 12th step, it tells me that if I will work the first 11 steps, I will have a spiritual awakening. I can tell you that I have had a spiritual awakening. And the reason I know that I have had it is because I no longer think like I used to. I am not the person who came to this program a little over 11 years ago. I have had a complete change in my thinking and my attitudes and my actions. Uh, it talks about carrying the message, and I want to thank you all for being here today. I think you're all carrying quite a message. Because, you see, if you weren't here, I couldn't be here. And this is the way this program works. We give to one another with our love. We feed one another with our love. So I'm glad you're here. Thank you for coming.